So this past week, a friend of mine uh, was posting in our group, our group chat, uh, our group thread. Uh, he, pr- he posted a video of a familiar scene. If you took your kids out trick-or-treating, you don't have to raise your hands. You can judge me if you want to as well. We did. Um, but you won't because you guys are cool. But um, we, we, we took them out trick-or-treating, and there was this familiar scene this year, and it was like this. Not a lot of people answered their doors. They just set candy out in front of their doors. Anybody else see that? There was a lot of people that were doing that. And, uh, and so this friend posted this video in our group chat of this, this kid who's a teenager, and he, he walks up, and there's a, there's a doorbell camera, right? So there's a doorbell camera on there, and the kid, the kid shows up at the door. It's got a little note, two buckets of candy on two stools. And uh, it says something like, grab two pieces of candy. And so he grabs the one and the two, puts them in his bag, and then he, he kind of looks around like, then I kid you not, he takes the whole bowl of candy and he pours it in his bag and he's like grinning real big and then he starts to walk off. And then he's like, he says something, maybe this isn't what he says, maybe it's more profane than this, but he's just like, these suckers. And he walks up, grabs the other bowl and pulls the whole thing into his bag and then runs off. And I, and I, when I saw this video, like my blood was like boiling, right? I'm like, and I literally said, I said, I hope Jesus shows this video to this kid one day, right? You know, I hope he does. I hope he gets him. And, uh, and my friend in this, in this group text, he just, he just threw a dagger at me. He's like, hey, man. He's like, I've stole way more than that in my life. And he said, I hope this kid knows two things, that he's a really big sinner and that there's really big grace from a really big God who loves sinners. And that's kind of where we're going today because what we see today is going to make your blood boil as you read the Bible. Um, And what I'm realizing as a human being just like you is that if I come to a place in my life where I can't see myself doing the same thing as other sinners, that it's probably impossible for me to become a conduit of God's grace to that person, right? If you, if you can't see yourself, in fact, we, I've often said this in the church, like when I'm in a healthy place with the Lord, and, um, and, and I'm living out in the open before him, a, a common kind of theme of my life is I'll be able to say this, I wouldn't put it past me to do the same thing. Like that's what it means to live in humility, to be able to say, you know, I wouldn't put it past myself to take four bowls of candy instead of two, right? Like I wouldn't put it past me to do that. And this is really kind of centered on what our big idea is today that we see in Genesis 38. And here's what it is. It's... That we sin, not when, not how, or even why we sin, that matters most to our God who stands ready to forgive sinners. If we spend our lives judging more wretched sinners than we or managing ourselves out of guilt, we can completely miss just how amazing God's grace is. If we believe this morning that this story of Judah and Tamar that we're going to dig into, um, if we believe that this morning, this story is going to blow your mind on how gracious God is. Because I got to admit, when I came into my study Monday morning and I flipped open Genesis 38, I was like, God, not this again. I just preached this like three weeks ago, right? You read this story and it's just this repetition of these same old dark sins. So here's the deal about today. Um, so that we don't get lost in the weeds of the particular sins of Judah and Tamar and get fixated on them and miss the big idea of this text, uh, I'm going to summarize the first part of Genesis 38, but here's the deal. I want you to go back and read it this week in your own quiet time and your time with the Lord. I'm going to read the second part of it. 
Okay, so here's the summary. Last week, uh, we, we looked at the story in Genesis 37 of, of Joseph, right? Joseph kind of becomes the preeminent figure on the stage. Joseph gets this coat. He's super proud about it, this coat of God's grace, and he's like rubbing it in his brother's face. They get tired of it, the favoritism, the sinfulness, and they end up doing the unthinkable. Um, they end up selling their brother into slavery, and their brother ends up being enslaved, uh, and he goes into Egypt, and he's placed in the Potiphar's uh, in Potiphar's house, and um, and 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 here's and here's what happens in this story is that it seems like Genesis is taking a detour because the next ch- twelve chapters will be all about Joseph's life, his his redemption, his salvation, and the way that he shows grace to his brothers. But before that happens, the Lord really needs to bring us up to speed on what's happening in Judah's life. Now, Judah is one of the twelve, uh, you know, sons of Jacob, one of the twelve tribes of Israel. And Judah is a very important and significant figure in the Bible because Judah's story is is the is the story is the is the is kind of the family the tribe uh, that that King David will come from and then ultimately King Jesus will come from. So we got to get caught up to speed in what's happening in Judah's life and and here's here's what we see uh, in this text today and here's what we see in our own lives is that God's grace exposes sin first. Then it covers sin second. Now, most of the time, here's the thing. When, 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 you, when God's grace is used to expose you in your sin, it doesn't feel like grace, does it? It doesn't feel like grace in this situation either, but what comes from it is amazing. So here's, here, let me catch you up to speak. Judah. Okay, Judah, they've just sold Joseph into slavery, and then it goes on to tell us what Judah's up to. Judah is on a rampage of his own. Uh, he's a prodigal son, and so he, you know, he says that his lostness in selling Joseph into slavery is just the beginning of how lost he wants to be. And so, um, so Judah leaves his brothers and leaves proximity to the, to the promised land, and he, hands, he heads down to the land of Canaan. And Judah seems uh, to meet this, this Canaanite woman. Uh, we're not told her name. We're, we're told that she is the daughter of a guy named Shua. Uh, and, uh, and, and the scriptures say that he that he takes her, that he lays with her, and he ultimately marries her. Now, if you were with us a few weeks ago and we looked at Genesis 34 at the story of Dinah, um, I don't know if this is a similar situation or not. The scriptures, they don't tell us that, but I wouldn't put it past Judah, okay? It's a dark, dark story. And, um, you know, sin is running wild in his heart and his family. And so the daughter of Shua and Judah, this Canaanite woman, are married now, and they end up having three sons, the first son's name is Ur. Uh, he ends up getting uh, married to this lady named Tamar. The second son is this guy named Onan. Uh, the third son is this guy named Shelah. Now, Judah's sons are just like their dad. They are super wicked. And Ur is so wicked that the Lord just puts him to death, is what the scriptures say. And that kind of makes us pause, doesn't it? It's like, what? I mean, you just, just a little short statement. He was so wicked, the Lord put him to death. It reminds us that God is God, doesn't it, when we read stuff like that, and that he doesn't owe us any grace. And so the Lord doesn't show her grace because he is a wicked, wicked sinner. Now, the next part of the story is it's culturally different than our context, but it's really important for you to understand, to understand Genesis 38. Uh, In this time, it would be the brother's duty to care for his sister-in-law. Now, this law is found in the book of Deuteronomy, uh, chapter 25, verses 5 through 10, if you want to look it up, but it's called a leveret marriage. Uh, so the brother would take the sister-in-law, 
uh, who's now, you know, a widow uh, as his wife, and they would do the things that married people do, um, and, and reproduce a child to carry on the brother's name and legacy. It was, it was a way to care for this widow. Now, this was, this was Onan's job uh, for his sister-in-law, Tamar. The, the, God's word was super clear on this. And the, and the Lord's, uh, you know, even, even like came to him and said, you know, this is what you're kind of what you're supposed to do. But Onan disobeys the Lord in this. And, he, and, and in doing that, he makes a mockery of God's law. And, and therefore, he leaves Tamar in this desperate and hopeless place. And, and because of this, the Lord doesn't show Onan grace either. He was so wicked, the scripture said that he put him to death too. And so what you've got left is you've got Judah, uh, who, who's, he'll, he'll become a widower as well, uh, Tamar, and you've got Shelah, his youngest son. And at this point, Judah reaches out to Tamar, and, and he, you know, he, he really believes that his son Shelah is not going to, he's going to do the same thing that his other boys did, so he kind of protects him. And he does this by saying this to Tamar, hey, Tamar, you should go back to your father's house. You should let dad take care of you because it's, it's what, what, what's becoming obvious to us is that we're not able to do that. And I don't, and I think selfishly, he didn't want to lose his other son, to be honest with you. And so, um, and so the two main characters now become Judah, um, uh, and, and one of the, who's one of the sons of Jacob and the leader of the tribe of Israel, um, that, that, you know, King David and Jesus will come from and this widowed daughter-in-law, Tamar. And, um, and what we see in this is our two main points here. The first move of grace is to expose sin. The second is to cover sin. So let's dig into this uh, passage together. If you've got a Bible, I want you to open up to Genesis chapter 38, and we're going to start in verse 12 this morning. You know, the, the scriptures tell us something um, incredibly helpful about our sinful condition. And I would say that, that if, you, if you don't understand this, it will be really hard to live in the uh, significance of God's grace that he has planned for his, his children to live in. Um, 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says this, that the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Jesus Christ. So here's what we can deduct from this truth as we go into this. Because we all have sin, there is at a minimum, at least a season where we live blinded by our sin and lost as can be. In the scriptures, uh, I think a lot of times we like to judge the lostness of each character, right? Uh, like we want to be like lost like Joseph, but not lost like Judah. But here's the thing I want to put before you. God doesn't seem to care about the degree of lostness in the Bible. Uh, it's, it's that we are lost that matters most, not how and why and when and, 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 and all of those kinds of things. So as part of our redemption, what God does is he has to expose our sin. He has to make us aware of our sin so that we will trust and live in his grace. And so this story is an example of really God taking the blindfold off of Judah's eyes eventually. It gets worse before it gets better, but he sees his sin. And that's the place where God can really work. And so if you're in here today and you're living in, in kind of a place where you've got a lot of hidden stuff, kind of junk in the trunk, you know, that, uh, that, that maybe that you're kind of hiding and, and, and really holding on to and trying to manage, my prayer is that you might have the courage to let the light of the gospel shine on it and to be found out by grace. Okay, so let's look at, let's look at Judah's story here. Uh, verse 12 says this, in the course of time, the wife of Judah, who was Shua's daughter, we never got her name, died. 
Now, when Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira, the Adulamite. Now, the Adulamite, this is, this is a region, uh, Adulam. This is actually the place where King David hid in the cave and built his mighty men, his army, right? He hid from Saul there. So, um, so what we see is that, that Tamar was told this, that your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. Um, and this was a guy that he had befriended uh, when he first ran away as a prodigal. So he goes back to this guy, uh, to his friend who's not a believer, and, um, and so when, when she hears this, verse 14, she takes off her widow's garments and she covers herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and she, she sits at the entrance of Enam, which is on the road to Timnah. And here's the reason why she did it. She saw that Shelah was grown up, so this is Judah's youngest son, the one that was supposed to care for Tamar, right? She saw that he was all grown up and that she had not been given to him in marriage. She had been left out to dry once again, she saw that her father-in-law was a worthless guy uh, and not a man of his word. But the question is, would God see Tamar? Would he? None of these other men that are supposed to see Tamar, supposed to care for Tamar, see her and do anything about it. But the question is, would God? Verse 15 says this, when Judah saw her, he's, when, he, when he saw her, he thought she was a prostitute. I told you the story gets interesting. For she had covered her face, she took off her widow's garments, and he turned to her at the roadside and said, hey, basically, I want to hire you. Um, because he didn't know that she was his daughter-in-law, and, and she says, hey, what are you going to give me? And he says, I'll send a young goat, verse 17, from the flock. And she said, if you give me this pledge... Uh, she said, give me a pledge until you send it. In other words, how do I know you're going to come through on your word after this happens? And uh, verse 18, he says, what pledge should I give you? She's getting crafty here. And so she says, how about your signet ring? Signet ring would have been, I mean, you, you could not go to the jewelry store and buy a copy of the signet ring. It would have been unmistakable whose ring this was. Give me your signet ring, right? Um, your cord and your staff that is in your hand. And so blinded by his sin, he says, he gives them all to her. And then, you know, surprise, surprise, she conceives after this, this incident. Verse 19, she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of widowhood again. No one is caring for Tamar in this story. Tamar is forced to look out for herself. Um, I'm not saying that God makes her sin, right? Uh, because God is not involved in that. But she is in a place of utter desperation. And we see this pattern over and over and over again. Part of the fall is that men don't step up the way God calls them to step up. Part of the fall in Lawrenceville today is that men don't step up like God's called them to step up. Now, this, this passage is interesting because both Judah and Tamar are sinful. But it's Judah's sin that God focuses more on. In fact, this text doesn't make any moral judgment on Tamar, nor does it any place in the Bible. She, she's just shy of a saint in the Bible. I'll go on to show you. Tamar is desperate for her life, and the Lord weaves her desperate ploy into his plan of redemption. We talked about this last week. It's just amazing how God even uses our sin to bring about good things. It's amazing. And we'll see in this passage that Tamar is loved by God, that she is seen by God, and even though she takes matters into her own hands, uh, she's doing, you know, what, what anyone uh, would do in a moment of absolute desperation and despair. 
Um, Tam- what we see about Tamar is that she is God's chosen vessel to redeem the family. That's how amazing God's grace is. Listen, verse 20 here. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, to take the pledge from the woman's hand. In other words, Judah's hiding behind his front man, Hira, the Adulamite, and saying, hey, man, can you go get my signet ring back? It's kind of a big deal that I have that. And uh, he sends the goat back. And, and uh, verse 21, you know, this uh, Hira's asking the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was, who was at Enam by the roadside? And all these guys that live there are saying, hey, I don't know what you're talking about. We've never seen that woman before. Um, And so verse 22, Hira returns to Judah and says, hey man, I haven't found her. Um, Also, you know, just FYI, the men of the place said, there's not a prostitute that's been here. And Judah replies, oh, okay, well, you know, let her keep the things as her own and, and, uh, or we shall be laughed at, you know, we'll be shamed. Um, And he says, you see, I sent this young goat and you did not find her. Same old Judah, covering up his sin. And uh, you got to wonder, Judah has to wonder, (laughs) he has to be convinced that this skeleton's never going to find its way out of the closet. There is a signet ring with his family seal floating around. You know this, anytime you try to cover up sin, you always get found out. And it's usually when you don't want to, right? This is the same thing that begins to happen. The the story comes unraveled. And uh, you know, our, our skeletons always come out of the closet. Sinners that are loved by God always get found out. And that's why, church, it's better to live found out than to be found out. Amen? It's better to live out in the open than to be found out in sin. Verse 24, here's what happens. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. She's pregnant by immorality. And Judah says, Bring her out. Let her be burned. You think you've got a bad relationship with your father-in-law? The audacity of this guy, right? Again, he's still clueless, right? Surprise, Tamar's with the child. Judah's looking to forget about this problem in his history. Maybe he's already forgotten about it. And, you know, this is the history of God's people. And desperation without grace leads us to all take matters into our own hands. And here's the other thing. People use religion to cover up their sin all the time. You know this, right? It's the story of the Pharisees in the Bible. It's the reason why Jesus went to the cross. They used religion. They brought him up on charges. Judah's doing the same thing. He brings her out to be burned and, and how, do we, how do we use religion to cover up our own sin? Well, I think a couple of, couple of ways. We either use it uh, on the licentious side of things as an excuse to kind of live like hell and do whatever we want to do, which also leads to misery. Or on the other side of things, through self-righteousness and judgment, we cover up sin like Judah is trying to do here. And like the Pharisees, we see them frequently do. But religion without a relationship with God through Christ is empty. It's an empty shell. And Judah's about to discover this relationship in a very painful way. Verse 25 says this. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law. She says, hey, Judah, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she says, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said this, she is more righteous than I. 
since I did not give her to my son, Sheila. And he did not know her again. So what do we have? We got Tamar on death row being brought out to the stake. The fire's already burning. And she says, oh, <laughs> just one last thing. She's holding all the cards, right? So these three, whoever, whoever um, you know, whoever, whoever these three items belong to is the guy who did this, right? Shouldn't, shouldn't, we, shouldn't he be a part of the equation too? And then he, he responds by saying, she is more righteous than I. And then, and then on his own accord, he knows exactly why she did it, doesn't he? He says, oh, I didn't give my son, my youngest son to her. I didn't encourage that. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't uh, encourage him to walk in obedience. And so this is repentance for Judah. He knows exactly what his sin is. And, um, you know, this is grace. This is grace springing out of Judah's mouth. You know, he's basically saying, I've been found out and God has used this woman to reveal my heart and to expose my sin. Because Judah has treated people like property his entire life. He's lived as an evil man and he realizes it and God takes the blindfold off of his eyes in this moment. It's, it's hard. Think about your life. It's hard to believe it's God's grace when you get found out, isn't it? But it's worse to not get found out, isn't it? It's hard to believe. Many of us know this. We've been found out. And I just want to declare this today, New City Church. This is a church for the found out. This is a church where it is not only encouraged that you be found out in your sin, uh, but it is expected. In fact, if, it, if you are somebody who has got skeletons in the closet right now, and you don't believe that verse in James where it says, confess your sins to one another so you'll be healed, you're going to be miserable in this church. Because each and every week, we're going to encourage you to be found out. Because that's the only place that we can be free. It's for, it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. I would be doing you a disservice to set up here week after week and let you live with those skeletons in the closet. So my prayer for you has been that the Spirit would break you to such a degree that the skeletons would come out of the closet and you would see that there's a better way to live. So let's look at the rest of this amazing story. It's the second point. Second move of grace is to cover sin. Because being found out is only good news if God can take away and cover our sin. Being found out is only good news if Jesus can transform us. And the reason so many of us live in hiding for so long is we functionally do not believe the gospel. We don't believe it. We don't believe that it's better to be known by God and covered by grace. We believe that it's better to strive for our own self-righteousness and not live by the righteousness that God has provided for us in Jesus. So Jesus not only covers their sin in this story, but he is not ashamed to write Judah and Tamar and Perez into the Lamb's book of life. And you know the beautiful thing? He's not ashamed to write your, your name in that book either. Listen to this, Genesis 38, 27 through 30. So when the time of her labor comes, you know, everybody's out in the open now. There were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put a hand out. This is, this is kind of an interesting aside here. I don't really know what to make about this, but I'm gonna read it for you anyway because God's word is sometimes mysterious. Um, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand saying, this one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, the brother came out instead. And she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. And after his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, his name was called Zerah. So Perez and Zerah are born here. Uh, Zerah was supposed to come out first, but Perez pushed his way through. I think it kind of reminds us as we think about even the meaning of his name. It means to break through. You think about this story. This story is, is Judah, you know, the tribe of Judah, and all of these pagans, right? 
and God writes them into the story. And it reminds us that God is always in the business of breaking through to the barriers that sin has created in our world. And we see him doing that here. And, uh, you know, God has this amazing plan for everyone involved. And, and listen to this. I want to read to you a passage we usually read at Christmas, uh, because every day is Christmas as a Christian, right? It's the incarnation. Matthew chapter 1, here's what the scriptures say. This is a genealogy, right? The part you usually skip over because the names are hard to read or you have Megan read them for you. Um, that's an inside joke that you'll find out about if you don't get that. But the, here's what the scriptures say. The, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Abinadab, Abinadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Do you hear all of these crazy stories? Tamar is just the first crazy one, right? Then you've got Rahab. You've got Ruth and Boaz. You've got Uriah, Solomon, born by the wife of Uriah, Bathsheba. Got all of these crazy stories. It makes me wonder what God's up to in the midst of our sin. It makes me wonder. Because here's the truth God is not ashamed of Judah. God is not ashamed of Tamar, who's the first woman in the genealogy of Jesus mentioned, and a Gentile woman at this, who poised herself as a prostitute to have Perez, who King David and King Jesus would come from. Tamar is the one that God uses to redeem Jacob's family. And ultimately, it is through Tamar that the promise goes down through. Judah and Tamar have discovered what real righteousness is in this encounter. Real righteousness is not something that we can achieve on our own, church. It is substitutionary, meaning, uh, meaning it's in place of ours, and it's imputed, meaning it's credited to us. And the quicker that you and I can really come to a place where we actually functionally believe from like a visceral level that we have no righteousness on our own, the more the gospel will boldly flow through our lives, church. And when I say righteousness, here's what I mean. I mean, it is the quality of being right in the eyes of God. You can be right in the eyes of a lot of people, but there's only one set of eyes that matter, and it's God's, right? Right? And the way that we are right before God is through the righteousness of his son Jesus being imputed to our life, being credited to our lives. And the thing is, is that you can, you can either, you can, you can try to be righteous two ways. You can try it on your own, or you can receive the righteousness that comes from faith in Jesus. You can't do both, though. You can't do both. God is so kind to uproot our own self-righteousness and give us the righteousness of Christ, which is a way better story, because then we're not judging the degrees of sin. It's like... Tamar, Judah, yeah, it makes sense, right? It's the righteousness of Christ that matters, not their own. I wonder what would happen if we lived that way with each other. I wonder what that would look like for our church, for our city, for our families. Because when I read this story, I typically get hung up on the particular sins of these characters. 
I'm thinking about their own righteousness or lack thereof, and I get angry and I get proud. But when I get, up, when I get caught up judging the particular sins of others or either over-examining my own sins, I can easily become fixated on a pursuit of righteousness that does not depend on Jesus. And that is a dead-end road, friends. Whose righteousness are you fixated on today? Because the Holy Spirit, and, and the Lord says this in John chapter 3, the Holy Spirit does not expose our sin to lead us into judgment. Je- Jesus said, I didn't come into the world to judge the world, to condemn the world in John 3. This is what he says. Um, not now, at least. The Bible says that the Lord is showing his patience in this season of the church. And when he comes, when he returns, he will judge the world. But now he's come to extend his patience and his grace. And the Holy Spirit Church exposes our sin to help us really believe that it was never about us to begin with. That it's always been about Christ. That Christ was not the plan B. It wasn't like, oh, Adam and Eve messed up. I guess I'll send Jesus. He was always the plan A. Because only in Christ can we know the full extent of God's plan and his grace. The book of Hebrews chapter 2 says that because of grace, Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. Revelation 3.5 says the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. And I love this. I'll never blot his name out of the book of life. Church, the genealogy, the family tree of Jesus is still being written. Do you know that? That our names are being written in that family tree that's got all of these twists and turns about people that we're sometimes ashamed to even mention their name. That's the, that's the family of Jesus. That's the story of Jesus. And if you're in here today and you're tempted to think that maybe you could never be right before God, I want to remind you by sharing one story with you as we, as we close out our time together today. It's an example of a time when a sinner was publicly shamed and humiliated before Jesus. And I want you to watch what Jesus does because I think he does the same thing for us. It comes from John chapter eight, starting in verse two. Here's what the scriptures say. Early in the morning, Jesus came again to the temple and all the people came to him and he sat down and he taught them and there were the scribes and the Pharisees, you know, those guys that are using religion to cover up their sin. Um, they'd caught this couple in the act of adultery and for some reason they only bring the woman and not the man, but don't get me started on that. And they place her in the midst of Jesus, and they say to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say, Jesus? This they said to test them that they might have some charge to bring against them. And Jesus begins doing this creative thing. I love it. I don't know what it is, but I love to speculate. He bends down and he begins to write with his, with his finger on the ground. We don't, we don't know what he's writing. Maybe he's, maybe he's writing their names. Maybe he's writing what they had for breakfast or the sin they committed this morning. I don't know what it is. I have a feeling it has something to do that's exposing these guys though, Right? Jesus has this, because of the way that they respond, he's exposing them the same way that they've exposed this woman. The only difference is Jesus is only standing by one of them at the end. Listen, it's great. Um, So uh, Jesus bends down, he's writing on the ground, and as they continue to ask him, he stood up and he said this, let him who is without sin be among the one to throw the first stone at her. And once more, Jesus, he bends down and he keeps writing whatever he's writing, and uh, they heard it, and here's, here's what happens. They went away one by one, 
beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where'd they go? Has has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. See, these Pharisees were trying to get Jesus in a trap. On one hand, if he, you know, didn't throw the stone, right, he would have been disobeying the law of Moses. On the other hand, if he, you know, if he did throw it or encouraged them to do that, he would have been violating his own heart of compassion and mercy. And Jesus says, there's, there's another way to live. Their trap is sent to center on upending Jesus' mission of extending compassionate grace to sinners, writing people in the family tree, right? And what we see is that grace destroys the self-righteous life they've built for themselves. And God does the same thing for us, church. It is such good news. I want you to picture yourself standing in front of these people that maybe have passed judgment on you. Maybe there's a similar situation where there's a moment in your life that your sin was so exposing that it haunts you as you think about it. I want you to picture those that accuse you, those that remind you that you're not the beloved of God, and maybe it's your own self, but I want you to picture something different this time. I want you to picture Jesus Christ standing right beside you, really, (laughs) to some degree, gunning down those guys around you that are trying to, 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 to let you believe that you're not loved by God and you don't belong in his family. Because the gospel is such good news, church, that Jesus stands beside us and he says, you're no longer condemned. You're no longer a slave. And as we think about the story of Judah and Tamar, I want you to remember the miraculous grace of God to write sinners into his family. And that the fact is that he wants to do that in your life and he wants to do that through your life in this world. Let's pray together. Father, I I just love those words, Lord, that when he asked this woman, you know, where, where do they go? Why do they not condemn you? Because Father, that's, that's what it's gonna be like when we're fully and finally in your presence. No condemnation, no shame, Lord. Our sin will no longer haunt us. Our pursuits of self-righteousness apart from you will no longer be tempting because we'll be full, uh, we'll be full of your spirit, Lord, full of your glory, Lord. And Father, I pray that for my friends today, Lord, that, um, that we would actually believe that we are righteous in your sight through Christ. That, Father, we, we wouldn't be so tempted to fixate on the sins of our past or the sins of others, but to fix, fixate on the one truth that matters most, which is that even though we've been exposed in our sin, we have been covered with the righteousness that comes from Christ. And it is a righteousness that never ends, that we are always right before you, Lord, because of Jesus. In fact, the sin that we can't forget, you can't remember. You cast our sins as far away as the east is from the west, and you clothe us with the righteous robe of grace, Lord. So, Father, I pray that you would help us to believe that today. And, Father, even as we turn to this table here, I pray that we, we would know that these aren't just words, but you, you showed us the righteousness that you would give us through your life, through your sacrifice, Lord. And so, Father, help us to believe that as we turn to this table today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, Pastor Ryan here. We're so glad that you've tuned in with us and watched one of our online sermons. 
Our vision as a church is to live as the family of God together, proclaiming and demonstrating the gospel of grace to one another in our city. If you don't have a church home or you're looking for a church, we'd invite you to attend one of our in-person worship gatherings so you can experience all that God has for us as a community of believers on mission.